Hi, I'm Henry Bear. And I'm Tyler Johnson. And you're listening to The Doctor's Art, a podcast that explores meaning in medicine. Throughout our medical training and career, we have pondered, what makes medicine meaningful? Can a stronger understanding of this meaning create better doctors? How can we build healthcare institutions that nurture the doctor-patient connection? What can we learn about the human condition from accompanying our patients in times of suffering? In seeking answers to these questions, we meet with deep thinkers working across healthcare, from doctors and nurses to patients and healthcare executives, those who have collected a career's worth of hard-earned wisdom. Probing the moral heart that beats at the core of medicine, we will hear stories that are by turns heartbreaking, amusing, inspiring, challenging, and enlightening. We welcome anyone curious about why doctors do what they do. Join us as we think out loud about what illness and healing can teach us about some of life's biggest questions. Despite the advances in medicine, issues in women's health are still often mired in stigma, shame, misinformation, and disparities in access and societal standards. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Jen Gunter, who's perhaps the most well-known and outspoken gynecologist in the world today. She has made it her life's work to dispel potentially dangerous myths about women's health and, more broadly, the wellness industry. Dr. Gunter is the author of The Preemie Primer, The Vagina Bible, The Menopause Manifesto, and the upcoming book, Blood, The Science, Medicine, and Mythology of Menstruation. She is also a columnist on women's health at the New York Times and the host of the podcast, Body Stuff. Over the course of our conversation, we discuss her work as an early pioneer in chronic pain medicine and vulvovaginal disorders, how experiencing a challenging childbirth led her to write her first book, the various spars she's had with celebrities over medical misinformation, the importance of discussing uncomfortable topics such as sex with patients candidly, and how she builds trust with her patients. Jen, thank you for taking the time and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is the first time we've had a gynecologist come on the show, so we are very excited about that. To kick us off, can you tell us what initially drew you to a career in medicine? Well, I actually had a bit of a run-in with the healthcare system when I was a child. So I had a skateboarding accident when I was 11 and I ruptured my spleen, which is a testimony to my bad skateboarding skills. And (laughs) the long and short of it is my mother didn't believe that I was in pain. So I didn't get to go to the doctor till the next day. Suffice it to say there was a big brouhaha because people were like, Hey, I think there's something really wrong. And uh, this was Back in the day, so there were no CT scans, there were no ultrasounds, so it didn't exist. And I think it's really hard for a lot of people to think like, really, there was a time, yeah, I'm that old. Uh, So I had to have an angiogram to make the diagnosis, (laughs) right? And I'm 11, and I was a little precocious, and I was like, I don't want any sedation. They were going to give me, you know, Valium probably, and I was like, I want to watch. And they were like, can you hold still? And I was like, you bet. And the, I'm going to guess, interventional radiologist talked me through the whole thing. I was fascinated. Fortunately, I got to keep my spleen, but the angiogram found out that I had kidney disease. So I ended up having to have all kinds of investigations over the summer for my kidneys and then ended up with a nephrectomy. So I had those sort of like four months of lots of tests, lots of going back and forth to the hospital. My mother had, you know, had left school when she was 12 or 13, and so... 
a lot of this was over her head. And so the doctors just explained everything to me. And I thought, well, this is pretty cool. And that's how I got interested in medicine. So when you were getting that angiogram, you were just awake and looking at the procedure happening. Yeah, I was looking at the fluoro <laughs> monitor. Isn't that wild? Yeah, in pediatric uh, radiology at the Winnipeg uh, General Hospital in Canada. Aside from everything else, I'm just trying to imagine an angiogram with no CT scan. I guess it would just look like the neon sort of outline of all of the vessels and looking yeah. for blood extravasating somewhere. That's really interesting. Yeah, you just see like, you know, a vascular flush and they were, you know, looking for, I'm going to, obviously I now know, you know, extravasation. And due to my mother's neglect, I got to keep my spleen because they figured if I hadn't bled out, this was just when they were starting to manage, I now know this in retrospect, splenic ruptures conservatively. So yeah, if my mother had actually like been on the ball and taken me to the hospital, I might've lost my spleen. So there you go. Was there ever any doubt or digression between 11 year old not quite getting a splenectomy and then going into medicine? Like, did you think about going to other things or start going into anything else? Or you were just kind of a straight line from there on out? Yeah, it was pretty much a straight line. I mean, I loved science. I loved math. I like, you know, I loved all that, uh, all the STEM stuff. And back in the day, I mean, there weren't that many women in medicine, but there was like no women in engineering. I knew of a couple of, you know, women in medicine. So I think knowing that it was kind of a possible route was also helpful. But yeah, I just, I found it like really interesting and neat. And I just never thought about doing anything else after that. And I think that it's weird to sort of, you know, be 11 or 12 and think, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. And then along these way, all these adults are like, well, that's too hard, little miss. You won't be able to do that. And the more people told me how hard it was and the more I wouldn't be able to do it, the more I was like, yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to double down here. I'm going to do that. I mean, I think that just in terms of the demographics, right? If you look at the number of women who are coming into medical school, for example, now versus the number of men, those numbers have pretty much equalized, even though the numbers in leadership positions and chairpersonship and all those things are still not. But as you say, when you were entering medicine, there were women in medicine, but it was certainly the exception, not the rule. Can you just talk a little bit about how that dynamic of being a person who is visibly different from many of the people who are studying with you, how did that impact your medical studies, especially early on? Yeah, I mean, I think kind of my generation of medical students and, you know, probably like five years before me, certainly where I trained, it might have been different in different places, had, you know, quite an influx of women compared to say like 10 years before. And in my medical school, they had pictures of all of the graduates going back to like when it first opened and whatever, like 1892 or 1902 or whatever. And I used to go down and walk the halls and look for when like the first woman appeared. And there was like two or three years, and there'd be another one, and then a few more years, and then there'd be two, and there wouldn't be any for you, you know? So I was very mindful of that legacy. See, you know, I think in my class, I think maybe we had a third women, which was, you know, considered like the highest at the time. And, but then, you know, they were like fewer chief residents, you know, so that it would sort of less and less as you went up. And so certainly far fewer lectures from, from female attendings. I have to say, I never really thought much of it because I've always had a, a very strong sense of self. The only time it really stuck home for me was when we were getting all our lectures about OBGYN. And I was incensed that here in this one area of medicine, we had like no parity. 
that, yeah, I mean, yeah, there, we didn't have any female anatomists and, you know, maybe there was one female cardiologist, like all that kind of stuff. But I thought, oh, for sure, our OBGYN lectures, there'll be more. And there wasn't. And it wasn't that any of our professors in OBGYN were awful people. They weren't. They, they gave great lectures. They were very caring. Many of them inspired me to go into OBGYN. But it really bothered me that it just seemed like, boy, wow, it's like, you'd think if we were making some inroads, it would be here. Yeah. So OBGYN, tell tell us more about that. Like, how did you eventually decide to pursue that as a specialty? Uh, Because I was pissed off about abortion. Okay. (laughs) That's basically it. I do a lot of things because I'm angry. That's really like my motivation. (laughs) Um, So right about the time was when the abortion law, I trained in Canada and the abortion law was overturned when I was in medical school. And so, you know, when I started medical school, you had to get a approval from a three-person panel that you didn't even get to meet. Your family doctor pled your case. And depending on who the panel was, you got it or you didn't get it. And so, yeah, so that just started to really weigh on me, you know, the access and that, you know, Dr. Morgenthaler's advocacy was very public and not that he was from Manitoba, but they had just, they'd opened a clinic a couple of years before I started medical school. And so, so that was really on my mind. And so I just thought, well, I better go into OBGYN. I would put my money where my mouth is and try to help out. But eventually, though, you come to subspecialize in pain medicine, but like this, this intersection of pain medicine and women's health, like, I think for many of us, we might be unable to even envision what that intersection looks like. Can you share with us what that work actually entails? And what got you interested? Again, because I was pissed off. Nobody was doing it. (laughs) So, you know, I graduated residency in Canada. It's a five-year surgical residency. And came to the States to do a fellowship in infectious diseases. This was when all the care with HIV was just starting to take off. And there were some sort of areas that I thought were going to be super exciting. And I thought, oh, I'm going to do that and get involved with HIV care and women. And what happens when you do a fellowship in infectious diseases, everybody sends you their patients with vaginal discharge. Um, And then I started to realize that nobody knew what they were doing. And there were all these people who were, you know, basically... (laughs) being driven to distraction over symptoms that had been sort of dismissed or not taken seriously. And so I thought, wow, well, there's something to that. And I guess if no one else is doing it correctly, then I'm, I'm going to figure it out. And then, of course, when you're able to treat the referring providers, patients who have difficult to treat vaginitis, and they start training people with pain. And so they just started coming. They, that, you know, I was in Kansas City where I had done my fellowship and I stayed on staff and all of a sudden, I became this tertiary care referral person. And so, you know, I was looking up journals, spending my days in the you know, evenings in the library trying to figure out, you know, this was again before you could just look stuff up online. And then I started talking to my pain anesthesia colleagues. And I was like, hey, could you teach me this block? And could you teach me this thing? And they're like, sure. And I was like, well, if I can open someone's abdomen, I, I can do a hypogastric nerve block. So, you know, I just learned how to do all the blocks with fluoro before people use CT or ultrasound, all that kind of stuff. And so I kind of got into it that way. And then I thought, okay, well, maybe I should get board certified if I'm doing all this. So I did the boards and got, you know, kind of grandfathered in. So that's kind of how it happened. A quick point of clarification for some of our listeners who are not in medicine. What do you mean by a nerve block? Oh, yeah. So, you know, nerve block. So if you've ever been to the dentist and they have numbed your mouth for something, that's a nerve block. You put numbing medicine around a nerve. And in chronic pain, uh, we do that for two reasons. One, for diagnostic purposes. So if we numb a nerve and the pain gets better, that tells us that nerve is somehow involved in the pain. And sometimes if we put steroid medicine around the nerve, that can help treat it. Uh, And so that's what a nerve block is. So you're a little bit unusual in the sense that 
instead of following a sort of already laid out prescribed path, right, where you just went through the training that somebody had already figured out and then you just started doing whatever you were doing, you kind of did something and then you kind of went in another direction and then you kind of got these other board certification and you kind of cobbled together your own career. You sort of made your own specialty almost in a sense. Can you help us to understand once you were all done with all of your training and of course, then later you have this sort of career as a public intellectual and we'll get to that later. But before that, just in terms of your clinical stuff, what were the bread and butter patients you were seeing? Like who was getting referred to you and how were you helping them in a way that maybe they had not been getting the help they needed before? Yeah. So chronic vaginitis, so people with, you know, discharge, itching, pain with sex, pelvic pain, endometriosis, um, interstitial cystitis, which we now call painful bladder syndrome, people with all these diagnoses that were sort of, you know, neglected diseases, I would like to say perhaps. And so really just, you know, trying to come up with treatment protocols and there weren't really a lot of, you know, a a lot of national guidelines for a lot of those things. But, you know, so then I would go to the infectious disease meetings and I tried to, you know, meet the people there. And, and, you know, I was fortunate enough to meet Jack Sobel, who's, you know, a leader in the field and, uh, you know, just started asking questions and getting involved. And then there was an infectious diseases society in OBGYN. And so I joined that society, a small, small society at the time, but super important because, you know, at the meetings, you'd, everybody was doing the same thing that I was doing. They had sort of like cobbling together this sort of information, filling these needs. Yeah. So kind of like a rogue band of people trying to help when there are very few guidelines and trying to come up with, you know, what would be some evidence-based or logical pathways uh, based on what we were seeing. Kind of my bread and butter would be chronic itch, chronic discharge, pain with sex. A lot of times you would just send me symptom people who just had like, they had no idea what was going on. And they'd be like, well, I don't know, but you, you helped my last three patients that I didn't know what was going on. So maybe you can kind of figure it out. You know, I think that office gynecology, which is a large part of what you do, isn't very well taught in residency. And I don't know what it's like in other specialties. I mean, I'm sure pediatrics teaches office medicine really well because that's what it is. But when you're in a surgical field, you often don't learn office stuff well. And and the idea is you're going to just kind of pick this up as you go along, which is sort of offensive because (laughs) these are real conditions and real problems. And just because they don't merit surgery doesn't mean, or, you know, biopsy doesn't mean that they're not serious or bothersome or life altering. So I kind of ended up in that niche again, because nobody else was doing it. And that made me angry. (laughs) And it makes me angry when people get bad care. Like it really makes me angry. I'm angry for them. You know, I'm angry at my profession. I'm angry at all the people who didn't listen to them. So that's how it all sort of came to be. Can you give us some examples of what you mean by bad care that you get angry about? Oh, sure. I mean, somebody will say I've had a vulvar itch for 10 years and, oh, okay. And nobody's done it. Like they've just told you like, suck it up buttercup. Like, (laughs) and they have, I mean, I'm not just, I'm not saying I don't believe my patient, but it's like, well, there's nothing to do. There are actually lots of things to do. And that's one thing I think a lot of physicians forget about is giving somebody a diagnosis is doing something. It's actually doing something big. Even if you don't have an answer, if you can tell someone what you think is causing their problem, that actually makes them feel better because then at least they're like, okay, I'm not making it up. This is a real thing. And then maybe once you have a diagnosis, then you can actually do something about it. Like a lot. So lots of people come to me without any diagnosis. So my analogy for that is imagine you want to go somewhere. And going somewhere is improving, getting better. But how do you go there if you don't even know what your starting point is, right? You have no point on your map to start from. 
where are you? Who knows? You know, we want to go somewhere. Well, can't tell you how to get there because I don't know where you're starting from. So things like that, like how do you tell someone for 10 years that their itch isn't bothersome? If it was on their face, you'd probably have done something about it, right? Is it less important because it's on their vulva? No. So that would be an example. Or people have pain with sex and they're just told it's normal. I mean, it's not normal. So there are things like that. It just, you know, people who just kind of have their symptoms belittled and don't have them addressed because they're considered lesser, which I don't even know how that, how that definition comes about, but that's sort of my experience anyway. One of the things that I think is at least strikes me as unusual when, so I work in the hospital a lot and there's such a bright dividing line in the hospital between internists and surgeons, right? Like these are like two entirely different worlds and never the twain shall meet, except that then you have obstetricians and gynecologists who do, I mean, not internal medicine exactly, but a version of internal medicine and surgery all the time. And then on top of that, also deliver babies, which is an entire like world unto itself. Can you just talk a little bit about what it's like to be fluent in all three of those domains of care? Because it like to me as an internist, even as an internist who then went on and did further training, and I'm a medical oncologist in oncology and administers chemotherapy and whatever. It's just like the whole framework of being a surgeon or even a proceduralist just feels it's not even like branches from the same tree. It feels to me like a totally different tree. So can you talk a little bit about being able to have experience and whatever level of expertise in all of those different domains? Well, I don't do obstetrics anymore. I just to be really honest. I think there's a difference between being a super competent generalist who does all of these things really well. And then the way medicine has become so, so subspecialized now. Right. So, you know, I do like quaternary care medicine for like the vulva, really like quaternary. I'm really like a quaternist. I would be like the best way to put it. The more specialized you become in one area, the more like I couldn't tell you what like the screening tests are for OB anymore. Like I have no idea. I could look it up and learn it, but I don't know it anymore. And so I think that there's places for both. There's places for people that have this great broad knowledge, right? Who are the frontline people, like people working in community hospitals and rural areas and general practices. And then there's places for people that are more specialized and, and super specialized. And it'd be great if we had a better interaction between all of them. You know, I think that that's one of the problems in medicine, I think in many specialties or many areas is that we're in too many silos, you know, and there's not as much, you know, intercommunication as there should be. There's not as much teamwork as there should be, I think. You know, maybe it exists more like in an ICU setting where everybody kind of has to come in round and you actually kind of have to talk. Maybe you're more likely to talk face-to-face, although I don't know what it's like now. I mean, I'm thinking about what it was like when I trained in the dark ages. So, but yeah, so I think that having a broad scope is really great, although medicine also has changed so much since I've been in OB. You know, what what's expected for an OBGYN to know now is really a couple of specialties. And I think that's why we're seeing it kind of branch out into kind of the OB hospitalist kind of avenue and also other more gynecological fields. And I mean, we've had reproductive endocrinology branch off. I mean, when I was training, lots of doctors did, except for IVF, but did a lot of their own fertility care. And it's much less likely now. You know, we have so many more MFMs. We have, you know, so many more urogynecologists. So it's just, it's becoming bigger as medicine becomes bigger as we learn more, right? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because in the medical oncology world, I mean, there are, to be clear, there are definitely still general oncologists, but even places that are not 
super ultra academic medical centers are starting to see some differentiation where a person will be mostly a GI oncologist mm-hmm. or whatever. Precisely because, as you mentioned, like I don't like as a GI oncologist, I keep up with, you know, about seven main diseases, the research in seven main diseases. And even that is a challenge because there's so much information coming out in so many different things. And so the general oncologists who have to keep up with all the research and everything all the time, I frankly sometimes don't know how they do it. And that's just one sub-branch of internal medicine. So to the point about an obstetrician and gynecologist, and I, as you said, I understand you don't do all of those things anymore, but that seems even more overwhelming to me. My hat is off to people, generalists who can bridge all of those domains. Well, and also too, I mean, you have to look at your surgical skills because, you know, for example, when I graduated, I was very competent in a lot of, you know, urogynecological procedures, which are now mostly done by specialists. But I graduated probably with, you know, I just came from a very, very heavy surgical program. And again, it's a five-year program. But as I started to do all this other specialty stuff, I would see less and less of those patients. And then at some point you're like, well, I don't really think I should be doing those cases if I'm only doing like two a year. Like, I just don't think I should because there's this other person who's doing two a week, right? So isn't it better that they do it? I'd want to go to the person doing two a week than the person doing two a year, right? You know, so you have to have that kind of self-awareness as well. Now, obviously, if I practiced somewhere where, you know, that didn't exist and, you know, I probably would have been busy enough doing all those other things that, you know, I probably wouldn't have done a fellowship and, you know, it's just a different pathway. Well, thank you for taking us through your kaleidoscopic career path. Now, of course, you are most well known for your health outreach and communications work with the public in a way that is entertaining and accessible. Your first book was The Preemie Primer. Can you share with us the circumstances that led you to writing that book and how that experience keyed you into the need for more accessible health information? Yeah. So, you know, I got pregnant in 2003. You know, we always like to say that obstetricians have the, you know, the worst outcomes. And uh, yeah, I did. I, um, so I had a triplet pregnancy uh, because of course, ruptured my membranes very early and delivered my first son at 22 and a half weeks who, you know, we elected to not resuscitate and then managed to stay pregnant for three and a half more weeks in the hospital and then got sepsis at 26 weeks and had a C-section. And my sons were one pound, 11 ounces, and one pound, 13 ounces. And so all three of us were in the ICU at the same time. It's a good time. And then on top of it, Oliver gets severe pulmonary valve stenosis and a large ASD and needed to have that repaired, but it was too small to have it repaired because they didn't make equipment small enough. For that. And, and then my other son was diagnosed with cerebral palsy and they both came home on oxygen and Oliver ended up having, you know, having a, his valve balloon to, you know, when he was three pounds. Can you imagine that? I, I have to tell you that the interventional cardiologist who did that to me, that guy's like a God. I'm sorry. Like that's a skill set beyond, right? And uh, so, you know, along the way, you're in the ICU, your kids are intubated, everything's terrible, but I could speak the language. And I would see people have interactions because, you know, you're all sitting to the you know, all these same parents. The doctors would come in and they'd say something and the person would like look at me and say, I don't understand that. And I would start like explaining. And I was like, wait, wait, what is going on here? Like, how are you not able to tell this person it's their baby? They need to know about it. And then you get to know all these parents because you all go to the same follow-up visits at the children's hospital, right? And you're sort of all, you know, you move through the system kind of together. And, you know, I'd start like leaning over and saying, well, say this, use these words, do this. 
And then I started realizing that, that there was this like massive communication gap. And I even had instances where I'll never forget my son was, you know, had just come off oxygen and he hadn't had his ASD fixed yet. And he was sick. I, I took him to an urgent care and they called an ambulance. We took an ambulance to the emergency department. And for the brief moment, the attending walked in, he looked good. You know, like that brief, like he had that like sort of five minute window of looking good, but otherwise he looked terrible. And the attending accused me of, of like wanting a social admission. And I was like, what are you even talking about, dude? Like I have another kid at home. I don't want to be here. My son is sick and he was awful to me. So I, I genuinely don't know what a social admission is. Oh, you never heard of that. So a social admission is basically you don't need to be admitted, but the parent wants a break. Oh, okay. Yeah. Or like the parents are overworried or something like that. And I'm like, dude, I like have four board certifications. I'm managing oxygen tanks at home. I'm like, I'm not here because I'm stressed out. I'm here because my kid's got Strider and I don't know what his respiratory was like 45, you know, like... <laughs> That's a lot, by the way. (laughs) And yeah. And they sent us from ambulance from the urgent care, right? Like it wasn't like the urgent care took one look where like 911. Like, so, you know, there was a lot of additional information that available to this provider, right? About what was going on. And I was like, I'm not leaving. You're admitting us. He's sick. And of course he spent, you know, a week in the ICU with influenza, influenza pneumonia. And I just was like, if I had been, like, if my husband had taken them in, he would have, like, get sent home. So just these kinds of communication issues just started to really weigh on me. And so I thought, well, let me write that into a book for people. And so that's how the Premier Primer came to be. I thought, okay, well, if I could give people some of the information that I've learned along the way and the tips and tricks, might be that would be helpful. And then I had a chance encounter with somebody who was a PR expert. I have no idea how it happened. Maybe, like, we were in line at like Safeway or something, or something, some one of those weird chance encounters. And she's like, you know what you should do if you have a book coming out? You need to start a blog and get on Twitter. <laughs> and I was like, cool. I don't know what a blog is. And cool. I've never heard of Twitter before. <laughs> and that's how I got involved with social media was initially to kind of promote the book. And then I, I figured out that it wasn't just prematurity where there was that big gap. And then I started to think about all my own patients and all the troubles they probably have had and communication and dismissal. And, and I just thought, okay, well, what if I could give people a textbook about their health, you know, that was written on their level so they could communicate better with their providers and get the care that they need. That's how it all took off. Yeah. You know, I uh, will always have in my memory, this encounter that I had when I was a training to be an oncologist, the person who was my attending that day, my supervising physician, was this one of the most famous doctors I had ever worked with, right? Like the world expert in a number of the diseases that we were taking care of. And so we go in to this patient whose first language was not English and who had just been newly diagnosed with a relatively rare form of cancer. And so we go in and the attending gives this kind of very erudite and, you know, good quality, I think, sort of monologue about this is what you've been diagnosed with and this is what that means and here's the chemotherapy that we're going to give and this is the you know what the treatment course looks like and anyway goes on and on and on and talks for I don't know maybe 25 minutes then at the end of all of this the attending sort of wraps up and leaves the room to go see a different patient and I'm left to finish some of the logistics and whatever of checking the patient out and after the attending has left 
the patient looks at me and with this just very clear fear in her eyes says, Mm. so is this contagious? Oh, and I just remember being like, wow. I mean, we were just not even in the right zip code, right? Yeah. I mean, even as a trainee in that setting, I was about 10 years into the training cycle after having started medical school. And, you know, in a lot of ways, that 10 years is spent getting further and further and further away from remembering what it's like to be a normal person who doesn't speak in medical jargon all the time. And it takes an incredibly thoughtful and diligently committed attending to not have the jargon come up all the time because it's just how your brain works, right? All of which is just to say that I feel like it's such a strange thing to note that we have gotten to the point where I feel like doctors almost need interpreters, even if they speak the same language as the patient, right? Which is functionally what a lot of your public presence is doing is just interpreting what doctors are saying and doing so that people who are not steeped in the jargon know what the heck is going on. Yeah. I mean, I think doctors need to do ultimately need to do a better job. Ultimately though, there's also all these other terrible time pressures, right? So you're a primary care doctor, you have like 12 minutes with somebody. How can you even hope, even if you're the best communicator in the world, how can you even hope to explain like the complexities of hypertension in 12 minutes, right? Something that most people have heard of high blood pressure, but you know what? You need more than 12 minutes to sort of understand the importance of taking the medication of, you know, even if you feel good, it's, you know, you can't count on feeling good. You need the medicine to protect your kidneys and to protect your heart. And then there's all the competing forces then on social media telling you that you could just take mushroom tea or something to, so why wouldn't you do that? Because who wants to have a disease when you could take a mushroom tea, right? So it's hard and it's complex. And I think that part of the problem is, is that you're fighting sort of several on several different fronts, if you will, like you're fighting the misinformation online, you're fighting the time pressures, the billing pressures, all these other things that none of them are in your patient's best interest. Right. And so you're, you're just trying to do your best. And I, and I always think about, so imagine two imaginary interactions. One is a patient walks in the door and you want to talk to them about vaccines. And they're like, yep, I read everything on the CDC page and I know this and I know that and I know it's going to protect me and I know I'm due for this booster and that booster and sign me up, doc. And you're like, great. And then you have the patient that comes in who's was on Jim Merkel's site and, you know, and is on InfoWars and they come in with all that, like, we all want to have the person who comes in with the correct information because they can get much more out of their medical care, right? And so I keep thinking, you know, part of what I do is how can I get more people into that bucket where they're now being able to walk into the doctor's office and they're able to maximize that time in a way that's better for them. So you started with this book, then you started with the blog and then maybe a Twitter profile. Where are you now? Like, can you give us a snapshot of like some of the communication activities like, that you engage in now? So I have what I like to call the Gunter Media Empire. So, <laughs> so along the way, you know, just, and again, like on Twitter, I'm just me and you, know, you 
seen my tweets and how I am. Uh, when I first started, so this was back in the day, they were like, prof medical professional societies said it was unbecoming of a doctor to be on social media. And I used the swears. And I was like, oh, fuck off. Like, like people want a real doctor. They don't, they want a real person. They want to know the person who's seeing them isn't a robot. They want to know wait, that, wait, right? Was, was that a generally accepted thing? I honestly didn't know that. that oh, medical yeah. society said you shouldn't be, oh, really? That's oh, so right. interesting. Oh, when I first started, oh, yeah. There were very few doctors online. And I'm like, wait a minute. It's okay for Dr. Oz to say what he says, but it's not okay for me. And then it was because I swore. I'm not kidding. And I'm like, okay. You can choose two doctors, one who swears but follows evidence-based medicine and the other who doesn't swear and is a snake oil salesman. Who do you want doing your surgery? Who do you want prescribing your medications? Who do you want? But yeah, so, you know, I just had a presence that keep grow growing and growing and I was very persistent with my blogging. I just kept writing because I was doing it for me. You know, every time I read a new article or there was something I wrote about, it helps me it's sort of my own personal you know, continuing medical education. Right. And then, um, you know, I got attacked by a celebrity. So that, that helps, um, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow didn't like me. Um, cause I would say, you know, nasty things about goop and other celebrities too. But so apparently, you know, having a celebrity hate you is really good for your public image. And people are like, aren't, don't you care? And I was like, no, like, why would I care? Like, it's funny. You know, then for a while I was writing for the New York times and then I did a Ted talk and that was the third most popular talk of the year. And uh, then I had a TV show in Canada and then I had a podcast and, and I'm still blogging. So, you know, I'm persistent. Parenthetically, I have to say that the entire idea that people who are famous must therefore have really valid opinions or know a lot about things or whatever is just so weird, right? <laughs> but it's it's very true, though. Tim Caulfield actually has written quite a bit on this, I believe. Celebrities come with them this influence. They have this aura of influence around them. That's why they use them in advertising, right? Like, you don't see me selling a car, you know, you, you, you see Matthew McConaughey, right? Um, not that he knows anything probably any more about cars than you or I do. So I, yeah, celebrities have that lure about them and we all mistake that for accuracy, I think, or we mistake it for validity or, you know, so, or to have worth. There was a study that one of my colleagues at Stanford did a few years ago. I'm forgetting the celebrity's name now, but there was a woman who I think had learned that she had a BRCA mutation or something, who is a very famous actress, and decided to have a double mastectomy prophylactically. In mm -hmm. other words, decided to have both of her breasts removed as a preventative measure so as not to get breast cancer down the line, because a BRCA mutation is a mutation that you're born with that predisposes you to breast cancer. And the person was very public about it, right? And I think with the best of intentions, I think was trying to say, Hey, look, like this is something that I'm doing for my own health. And I, you know, and I feel like this is important to get on top of this and whatever, but there are two things. The one is that the necessity or utility of doing that, depending on a whole bunch of other things, which we won't get into, but the point is just to say, it's not like a, it's not a straightforward decision that everyone who has that mutation needs to have that surgery. That's number one. And number two, what the study showed was in the, that in the year after she announced that decision, the rate of people in similar situations getting a similar surgery spiked significantly. And there was no new evidence. The only thing that had changed was that she had announced that she had gotten the surgery. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it's a double-edged sword because in medicine, we do a 
often a very bad job at explaining things or people have trouble accessing because of health insurance or all these kinds of issues, right? But then on the other hand, you know, if a celebrity is not spreading accurate information, then what happens there? I mean, you know, so it's, it's hard and, you know, explaining all that and people have biases, you know, I think that's one thing I've certainly learned writing for a lot of publications is I would say, why well, this is the really important point. I'd write this piece. And then the editor would be like, yeah, no, I think you should really focus more on this. And I'm like, but that's not medically important. And that's actually not what I want to emphasize. And if you're telling me it's boring, okay, I can fix that. Like, but you're telling me that's not the direction you want to go in. And I've heard that from many editors and many publications, right? And think about it yourself. Think about some big article in whatever field you're in. And then look at how CNN covers it versus the New York Times versus maybe MedPage versus, you know, the Washington Post versus USA Today. And they're not always all telling the same story, but it's all the same article, right? So it's, uh, it's just interesting. So I, I know that we're well into our time and I want to make sure we don't miss. So on your website, you have a tweet that you quote from yourself that says, come for the sex, stay for the science, come for the science, stay for the sex. Uh-huh. So, you know, so, okay, to rewind a little bit, everybody in medical school, maybe not everybody, but many people in medical school, this is a significant, it's like a thing that you have to get over the idea of talking to patients candidly about sex or any of that kind of any related stuff, right? Because in general, friendly conversation, we just don't do this very much, right? You know, and then depending on what you're going into, and if you're going to do that a lot in your subspecialty, then most people sort of become accustomed to it and then whatever, it's fine. But you have gone far beyond that discomfort to making a a sort of a national brand that not, or international, whatever, brand that not that is wholly based on that, but certainly a part of what you do is to discuss candidly things that other other people don't feel comfortable discussing even with probably their close friends or whatever, let alone on in such a public way. So can you just talk a little bit about that aspect of your career? How did that come about and how does that play out for you? Well, I think a large part of it is coming of age medically and as a young person in the early ages of HIV. And every day it seemed like there was some young man dying and we had to call a lot of times family and sometimes we'd call and they'd hang up. <laughs> they'd hang up because there's someone's gay and had HIV. And I was just like, I just couldn't get over how awful, like, you know, just imagine you're dying in the hospital and, and you don't even get to die in your own home. And I just, you know, so I think you, we had to, you know, we, you, you're like, I wasn't going to have sex with them. They weren't going to wear a condom. And, you know, so it was, all of this was very, you know, very mindful. And you'd have to, you know, you you're very kind of upfront about risks and talking with people and about, you know, what happens when you can't talk about it, like the, the devastating consequences. So I think for me, it comes from that, comes from those experiences. I can still see the faces of some of those those young men when I was on a service at the Health Sciences Center in the 1980s. And it just really, really affected me, this sort of this consequence of shame and how terrible it is, how terrible it is to be shamed over something that's so natural, like who you love or who you want to have sex with. Like, it's just ridiculous. I just never really felt any sort of shame or anything. I just never, 
I, it just seemed to me to be as normal to talk about that as was talk about your elbow or your toe or whatever. And then as I got involved in gynecology, I started to see how, well, what do you mean you couldn't tell your gynecologist you had an itch for six years? You see your gynecologist, what's in my vagina? Well, yeah, but you can tell, like, you know, where you see women coming in and they're like embarrassed because they're on their period. And you're like, if you're a gynecologist and you're like upset that your patient's on your period, you're in the wrong field, right? Like that's like a, being a gastroenterologist and being upset your patient has diarrhea. Like that's why they're seeing you. So, yeah, so I just think it kind of came from that. And also my parents were, <laughs> my parents, you never can never talk about sex in the house. So I think I really enjoyed that. It really annoyed my parents, my mother specifically, because she wouldn't tell people I was a doctor. Never. She would say something else or I was in medicine, but she wouldn't say what it was. And, you know, she was still alive when the my book, The Vagina Bible, was going to come out. And she was just, like, horrified, like, horrified. That was the title of the book. So, I mean, some of it might have been that, too. <laughs> One of my sons is gay. And I was, you know, right on, like, hey, you know what? We got to talk about prep. Let's talk about it. Um, he's like, oh, I saw that on the bus. Great. You know what it is? Because they've had sort of everywhere in San Francisco. And let's talk about it and let's get you started. And, and I, you know, I've, I've coached lots of other friends with, you know, with kids who are going off to college. Hey, did you ask them about prep? You know, you should ask all your kids going to college. You just never know. And wouldn't you rather they be safe? And it's so amazing. It's like a vaccine for HIV, but you take it orally. And, you know, I just talk about it because once one person talks about it, everybody talks about it. And, uh, and why should you be ashamed? That's actually really powerful to think about. Like once one person talks about it, it just, you normalize it and, you know, people start realizing, oh, everyone's thinking about the same thing. It's this affects all of us. Right. So with the last bit of time here, I'd love to ask about some advice you might have for our early career clinicians, our medical trainees, students, pre-meds, what have you. Initially in my head, these were two questions, but actually they're kind of two sides of the same question which is about misinformation and trust. So if you're in medicine, you're going to deal with misinformation that patients bring to you. I mean, you know, just today I had that, you know, I had actually, a, this patient was, was a nurse, but worked in healthcare. We were about to discharge her and she asked me all these questions about all these supplements she was taking, many of which I, I have no way to address them because I, we just don't learn about them. I don't know what these supplements are, um, right? So it happens like on a daily basis. What advice do you have for dealing with misinformation respectfully with patients? And then I guess like that would segue into having dealt with these delicate questions, issues from patients throughout your career. What advice do you have for building trust with patients? So I would actually reverse it. So you have to build trust to be able to talk about misinformation. And I didn't realize that early on in my career. Like when I first started talking about information, I'd be like, if I just give people the good information, they're going to take it. But then like, why should they trust me? I mean, even though they're coming to see me as a doctor, like, you know, Oprah's telling them something else. Dr. Oz is telling them something else. The person selling a supplement is promising them something else, right? So how, how does that happen? So I would actually say, unless you think that misinformation is like going to like harm them today, like urgently, like, okay, that supplement we know interacts with whatever your Coumadin and this is like super dangerous. And I, we've got to like address this right now, because if you fall and hit your head, it could be a problem, right? So if, unless it's something like that, I would actually say, let it go and invest in being the person that they trust. So take the best care of them that you can answer all the questions that you can 
and maybe table those other things, you know, unless they come up as something that person really wants to discuss once you've built some trust. So you can kind of have that discussion because think alternative medicine is a religion. It really is. If it was science, we'd be doing it, right? And people align with the influencers. They're called influencers for a reason. Taking the pills is many ways like taking the sacrament. There's a lot of ritualistic stuff that's part of it, right? There really is. Think about all the language that alternative medicine uses. Purity, goodness, cleanliness, getting rid of toxins. If you think about medicine 200 years ago, it was all about the hunt for purity. Medicine and religion were very similar, and they only really separated in the 1800s, right? That's why it's very evocative for a lot of people, because we all want to get back to that natural state, that pure state, that unaltered state. And those are things that medicine doesn't offer. We want to treat cancer. We want to, you know, so we're using these, what are called devil words or devil terms and rhetoric and alternative medicine is the hunt for purity and goodness and natural. So I encourage people to think about it more like that. It's in, and so if I were to tell somebody, like I would never go up to someone and say, you know, talk smack about their religion. Right. But that's how it comes across to somebody. If you just start talking about what they're doing, because they've invested their time, their money, their beliefs in this system, and you're just not going to get anywhere. And so unless it's an urgent issue, I usually just let it go and I do my best for the patient that I can in that moment. And then as hopefully they begin to trust me, then I'll say things. But obviously, you know, if they come in with a slew of labs or naturopath ones, I'm not going to do them. I'm like, your naturopath needs to have the credentialing to order those tests if they're important because I don't believe they're important. So I'm not going to do them. What are naturopath labs? <laughs> oh, I Oh my God, all kinds of hormone testing and things that, you know, each specialty has their own, I'm sure, problems with that or alternative labs and stuff. And, or they come in with microbiome testing and I'm like, there's no clinical studies that tell us what to do with those results. So I'm sorry that you spent all that money on it, but I can't, I can't interpret them because the company hasn't done any studies to tell us what it means. And, you know, if I sample your vaginal microbiome at eight in the morning and 10 in the morning and 12 in the afternoon and six in the evening, it's probably going to be different every one of those times. So I don't know what these results mean. And we can cause harm in medicine by trying to treat things, you know, giving antimicrobials when they're not indicated can often cause a ton of harm, right? So I try to invest in the visit. I try to invest in doing the best I can for somebody. And then hopefully along the way, then people start asking more about supplements, more about this, or what do you recommend about that? And then I'll tell them. And so I think there's a difference between, you know, someone who, for example, in oncology is like going to go to some clinic in another state and get IV vitamin C, you know, for their cancer, which is completely treatable, maybe if they had, you know, radiation or, or chemo or whatever. And I get that, right? Like chemo and radiation, that's super scary. It's very scary. So like, why wouldn't you want to go to a natural clinic that tells you they can cure cancer with that? So unless it's something like that, where I think like my patient's in immediate harm, you know, I try to invest in the return. Well, with, with that, we want to thank you again for taking the time to join us in conversation and for sharing your stories, for being so open and vulnerable. We really appreciate it. And thanks for all your work combating all the misinformation out there. It's been a true pleasure talking to you. Oh, well, thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much. We really appreciate your time. Thank you for joining our conversation on this week's episode of The Doctor's Art. You can find program notes and transcripts of all episodes at thedoctorsart.com. If you enjoyed the episode, 
please subscribe, rate, and review our show. Available for free on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We also encourage you to share the podcast with any friends or colleagues who you think might enjoy the program. And if you know of a doctor, patient, or anyone working in healthcare who would love to explore meaning in medicine with us on the show, feel free to leave a suggestion in the comments. I'm Henry Bear. And I'm Tyler Johnson. We hope you can join us next time. Until then, be well.